And I would have loved to have resigned. It would have saved me a lot of heartache and grief, but I felt my higher duty was, was being there. Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Mark Esper, who served as Secretary of Defense under President Donald Trump, and is now out with a new book, Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. Mark Esper is just the latest Trump official to publish a book concluding that the former president is dangerously unfit and poses a threat to democracy. But Esper isn't any ordinary staffer. He's a West Point graduate who saw combat in the Gulf War and served as Secretary of Defense in the alarming final days of the Trump administration. He describes Trump as a president who was brimming with dangerous ideas, from shooting George Floyd protesters to bombing Mexico. Esper voted for Trump in 2016 and still describes himself as a Reagan Republican, but he's now warning the party against supporting Trump in 2024. I called up Esper on Thursday to discuss his book, his time in the Trump administration, and what he fears most about a second Trump term. Uh, Mark Esper, congratulations on the book, and thank you for joining me. How has the tour been going? Thanks, Aiden. Uh, first of all, it's great to be with you, and it, it's it's gone well. We're, we've been two weeks into it now. The book just came out as number three, I think, on the New York Times bestseller list. So I'm, I'm pleased with how it's faring, but more importantly, I'm, I'm glad to get this important story out to the American people. Now, in your book, I think this is what's been getting the most attention. You describe a series of incidents during the Trump administration in which the president, and this is how you put it to 60 Minutes, you said he proposed dangerous things that could have taken the country down in a dark direction. They include Trump proposing that police shoot George Floyd protesters, bombing drug labs in Mexico, a slew of other uh, fairly alarming proposals. What was, from your perspective, the most alarming thing that you heard in the White House during your time as Secretary of Defense? I, I think it is clearly the the proposal suggestion talk of shooting protesters in the streets of America because it would be you know terrible, dangerous, uh, uh, awful. And, and, and then to have the military do it or suggest that we use active duty troops, bring them into the streets of the nation's capital, which has been a terrible for the DOD as an institution as well. So, it, you know, it's just unimaginable. And, and that's why I think we were all I was taken aback by the notion when it came up in the Oval Office. What was the reaction like in the Oval Office when he when he said that amongst amongst everyone else that was there? You know, he said it and he was looking at uh, General Mark Milley when he asked the question about, you know, can't you just shoot them, just shoot them in the legs or something? And it was almost a technical type of a question. But he 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 one of the things he does, the president does, is he he poses suggestions in the form of questions like that. And so I think we were all taken aback. It just hung there in the air and there was just silence. And then we, we got back to, Mr. President, we, we don't need any troops. We need law enforcement. This is a law enforcement matter. Uh, you know, we don't shoot protesters. Right. So it was stuff like that. I think it, it just hung, I just remember hanging there in the air for quite some time. Now, you've spoken at length about why you didn't come forward and speak out during the administration about incidents like that. Did you consider it when you heard a comment like that in the Oval Office? Did you consider going to the press or speaking out publicly about it? So the first page, first two pages of the book, I write how this happened. And as Millie and I exit the uh, Oval Office, Millie leans over and says, I'm this close to resigning. And I say to him, me too. And then I take the next 10 pages of, of, the, of all 670 of them and talk about um, you know, how I wrestled with this idea. Should I resign or not? And what's best for the country? What's my oath? And as I've said to others, look, at the end of the day, it came down to this. There are only two people in the United States that can deploy U.S. troops. It's the Secretary of Defense and the President, number one. 
And I felt that given all these outlandish ideas that were being proposed by him or others, that my duty was to be there to stop them, to push back, to, to kind of fend off, because, uh, because if not, I was very confident that whoever he put in behind me would be an uber loyalist and they would do whatever uh, they, he wanted. And look, look what happened on November 10th or November 9th when I was dismissed. This, the DOD is decapitated. They take out not just me, but undersecretaries and put their team in. And as I say, look, if you, if you like the last two months of the administration, <laughs> think about what it, it, it would have been like if you gave them eight months. Right. There would have been no one there to say no to a quarter million troops on the border. No one there to say no to uh, missiles being shot into Mexico. Nobody there to say no to shooting Americans in the streets of the nation's capital. And we can go on and on and on based on these anecdotes I give in my book. But Look, that was my reason at the end of the day. And I would have loved to have resigned. It would have saved me a lot of heartache and grief. And and people would have said, oh, you know, Esper's great. Uh, you, you know, he resigned. He stood up to Trump. But I felt my higher duty was was being there. A lot of people that have worked in the White House have, have come to describe the final year as being the darkest. Would you describe your role towards the end of the administration as primarily serving to contain a presidency that had gone off the rails? I had two focuses going in. I, again, described this in the book. One was to continue to push a positive agenda in the DOD where I could modernize the military, uh, build up cyber command, establish the Space Force uh, more thoroughly, a number of things, take care of our service members and families. But I also was very conscious that I, I now had a, another role to play vis-a-vis -vis the White House, and that was Again, pushing back on bad ideas, uh, giving the president my honest advice uh, and, and trying to keep things in check until we got to the election. Because I figured, particularly after June 1st, the key was to get, get the country, get, the, uh, get us to the election and let the American people decide who they want to be their next president. You describe some officials as being with you in the effort to keep things sort of sane in, in the White House and, and others like Stephen Miller as enabling the president's more alarming inclinations. Did you run into problems with staffers like Stephen Miller? Yeah, I think too many, too often, they were often putting bad ideas in his head. And, you know, I talk about Stephen Miller and the idea of quarter million troops to the border or this notion uh, of, of dipping Abu Bakhtar al-Baghdadi's head in pig's blood and, and parading it around. I mean, there were too many people around uh, President Trump that either put up bad ideas in his head or cheerlead. Uh, in terms of uh, things that he may want to do. So I, I talk about the National Security Advisor constantly uh, kind of applauding or promoting this notion of hitting Iran hard, going after Iran, and, and myself and General Milley having to push back on these ideas. It's the kind of ideas that you hear from someone like Steve Bannon that are great on talk radio, but when it comes to a president actually executing them would, would pose a serious problem, I think, globally. Well, look, what we used to say, General Milley and I used to say to the president all the time, it's easy to get into a war, but it's really hard to get out of it. And, and just ask Vladimir Putin right now, right? If Vladimir Putin could rewind the clock, I, I bet he wouldn't go into Ukraine. And that's what we were very conscious of. And it always kind of struck Millie and I as odd. We were the only two uh, persons in that room that ever served in combat. So we, we knew what it was like, especially Millie, multiple tours. And yet we, we always thought that we came across as the doves. And it was kind of a strange position to be in. Right. You said in an interview with, with Fox News that the aftermath of the 2020 election demonstrated to you that, that, that Trump poses a threat to democracy. I'm curious what you thought when you joined the administration. Were you hopeful or did you have fears even then that he was unfit for office? I think you're always hopeful of any president coming in from any party, right? You, you hope that they'll do better than you expect. And in some ways, and you want, I'm sure 
look, a lot of progressives were very hopeful of Joe Biden, and many of them are now disappointed in Joe Biden. So that's the way it works. But I came in out of a sense of, you know, public service. I've been in uniform since age of 18. And I, uh, Trump was an outsider. He had a corporate background. I like that. He promoted traditional Republican policy objectives, such as lower taxes, deregulation, conservative judges, border security, rebuilding the military, all the things that I I support. And I figure with any president coming in from the outside, particularly somebody like him who has no government experience, the key thing is you have to get the people who know government in around him to help him out and to, to make sure he is as successful as possible, which is why I dismiss this notion that people shouldn't serve. I think you need good people to serve because otherwise you're left with bad people. So yeah, I was helpful. And uh, and he talked the right talk with regard to uh, to uh, policies. We, we knew that he had a lot of issues in his in his life that weren't too appealing, right? With uh, things that came out, things he said or did, particularly with regard to you know women or whatnot. Mm. Those things were troubling. But look, you serve the country. You don't serve the president and you don't serve uh, the party and you don't serve a philosophy. You serve the country. How widespread was the feeling in the White House, at least by the end, that Trump may not be fit for the job? Well, of course, you know, I wasn't there for the last 60 days. And I right. think that's when it took its darkest turn. Really got off the rails, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I never had those discussions with my cabinet members. I, I never I never saw a situation where people would say, yeah, he's incapacitated or whatever the case may be. Again, I, I had good working relationships with uh, Mike Pompeo and Attorney General Bill Barr and Gina Haspel. Right. Uh, all, you know, she, she in particular, all good folks to work with and kind of never had a discussion along those lines. Did you vote for Trump in, in 2016? Uh, yes, I did. Do you do you regret that now? Well, I, I my choice was my choice. Uh, you know, a lot of Republicans <laughs> weren't too enthralled with Hillary Clinton. So I think at the time, based on what I knew, um, that was the better choice for me. I did not vote for him in 2020, however. Right. To what extent do you think that Fox News hosts or other figures in the conservative media world influenced the president's thinking when he was in office? And did you have any experience of that? Well, they did. And I'm sure that uh, probably the true is the same is true for Biden and, and MSNBC. Who knows? Right. Right. But yeah, you, the president watched Fox constantly. He would pick up ideas from Fox News hosts on certain shows. And it was uh, predictable that if somebody came up with an idea that um, uh, on, on these shows that he might act on it or at least inquire about it. Um, you know, there, there's nothing we, we often we get news and ideas from 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 uh, news, but clearly uh, Fox dominated his, his thinking and what he watched. You had an interview with Brian Kilmeade on Fox and Friends, and he described you as objecting to Donald Trump's style almost more than anything. What would you say to Republicans who describe the problem with Trump's behavior as merely a matter of style or tone instead of something more serious or dangerous? Well, let me step back a couple of steps. Yeah, first of all, I, I think the policies that he promoted were traditional Republican policy, and he made progress on them to his credit. The challenge was he just went too far in some ways, right? Or his people did. So I like the fact that he thought NATO should pay more. I agree with that. Um, but he goes too far in terms of suggesting withdrawal from NATO. I, I believe in border security. I was fine putting a few thousand troops on the border to s- support DHS. But I wasn't... It was absurd for Stephen Miller to propose a quarter million troops. So there's that. Um, on style, I think every president's had their style. Um, I, I thought President Trump was too coarse in the sense that when you're so coarse and derisive and you and you denigrate people, what happens is you can't you can't grow a broader base. And if you can't grow grow a broader base, 
then you're going to have a tough time winning elections. And if you can't win elections, then it doesn't matter what your policy agenda is. You just won't get it over the board, over the uh, mark. So I think we need to elect leaders who can grow the base and bring people together. And then I think the third part, uh, Aiden, is, look, clearly it was more than just policy and style at the end when he, you know, undermined the election where he incites people to come to D.C. and then to go to Capitol Hill and then fails to call them off. That was a whole different, whole different ball of wax, which which I think we all I view is wrong. And, and it was tragic and what happened. And and uh, and he's responsible for it. The media gets a lot of blame, I think, from both sides uh, of the political aisle for its obsessive coverage of Trump. What do you see as the biggest mistake or mistakes that the media made in how they covered the administration? Yeah, I write a little bit about this in my book because we, we generally had a good Pentagon press corps, very professional, but we had our few. And I, and I talk about them and point out some issues. Look, I, I think the press is very important to America. It's critical to our democracy to have the so-called fourth state out there. But they have to be not, not, not just a free press, but we need a fair press and an objective press. And I thought Oftentimes, uh, some some uh, at least some reporters. I won't brand a whole, you know, MSNBC would be opposing Trump just like they're supporting Biden now. But certainly, some reporters just their narrative was always negative. It was always what could they see the worst in Trump or his people? What could they view the worst in the stories? I mean, it, it goes back to the everything from the early days, the Russia Gate stuff, to the Hunter Biden laptop, to you know this whole notion that. Um, uh, the, the uh, COVID, the, uh, the virus came out of China. People dismissed that because Trump promoted it. So I, I, look, I think I'm concerned about uh, the standards of professionalism in the media these days. And not, I'm not trying to pick on them because clearly there are biases on both sides, on all sides, but it's critical and to, to our functioning democracy. And I think in some ways, it's a reason why Americans have turned off and are finding their news on social media, which is even worse. Uh, and so that's my concern right there with regard to the Republic. What do you think of those like former Attorney General Bill Barr, who said that they would support Trump in 2024, despite agreeing with you that his presidency went off the rails in the in the aftermath of the 2020 election? Look, uh, Bill Barr was a good colleague of mine, particularly when it came back, it came to pushing back on the president uh, with regard to the Insurrection Act. And he fully supported my view that law enforcement should lead. So I found him a good colleague, smart, uh, witty, um, you know, uh, but I, I don't know why he how that logic works for him. Um, I think he's explained it. Um, I'll just leave it at that. I, I, I won't vote for the president in 2024. It does look like it, that there's a very good chance he's going to run. What do you fear most about a second Trump term if he does get elected? Well, first of all, he's going to he's not going to make the same mistake twice in terms of who he brings in. He'll bring in true uber loyalists who share his views and will do what he says. So uh, he'll he'll have that, first of all. Uh, secondly, I think he's going to act earlier on many of his impulses. And from a national security perspective, that could be withdrawing from NATO. That could be pulling troops out of Japan or Korea. Um, could it, it could involve deploying more troops to the border, uh, more than what I think is necessary, more than so many that could damage readiness. I just don't know. I, I, that's why I'm, I'm concerned. Because look, in, in my mind, setting setting aside the extreme partisanship on both sides of the aisle, which I think is the greatest challenge facing our country, uh, the next external one is China, our strategic adversary. And uh, we, need a, we need somebody who can lead aggressively against them and bring people together and organize the government. I do give the Trump administration credit for building a consensus with regard to China as our strategic adversary. 
But in terms of driving a, an, object, uh, an objective from the top, and I, I, I didn't, I thought, you know, the president hurt his own um, uh, policy here. But you need a leader who will lead on that and not try to buddy, 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 buddy up to Xi Jinping. And so those are just some of my concerns from a national security perspective. You, you describe yourself as a, as a Reagan Republican. Do you still have faith in the Republican Party after the, the Trump saga? I think the Republican, the Reagan Republican Party is in there somewhere. And we just got to coax them out from the shadows and right. tell them it's OK. And, and so, yeah, you, the, the, the president will call you names and he'll yell at you, but you'll be OK. This is where leadership comes in. You got to stand up and, and, and speak out. And uh, look, I get it. I, they're being influenced by the base, by their voters. And, and so I would just say this much uh, to, to my fellow Republicans out there is this. Um, look, you can get all the same good Republican policies. You can make progress as well. Uh, but we can do it with the next generation of leaders who, who won't be coarse and divisive, who can not just grow the Republican base and win elections, but can bring the American people together. We need to win elections. And frankly, Donald Trump lost in the White House in 2020. He lost the Senate in 2020. And if all states, Georgia, right? We're not talking about a purple state or a blue state, but a deep red state called Georgia. And he didn't recapture the House. Right. So look, we're not winning elections with under Donald Trump. What I find so hard to come to terms with is the fact that you're one of many very experienced government officials who have witnessed Trump up close and come to the conclusion that he is a threat to democracy, a danger unfit to the office. In your book, you you talk about how you feared that there was a chance that he might launch an unnecessary war in the last months of the administration, which is pretty scary stuff. And yet he still has overwhelming support in the Republican Party. Does that frustrate you that your part, many in your party don't seem to grasp the dangers of Trump, despite you and other cabinet members that served in his administration screaming about them from the rooftops. Yeah, it is frustrating. It's and it's frustrating for other Republicans who just, uh, again, are, are reluctant to speak up. And uh, and I, I, this is where leadership comes in. You need leaders who are recognized to speak to their constituents, to speak to the voters, to explain all this. And the fact is you can't beat back something with nothing. Uh, this is true in, in any political, any endeavor, right? You have to put something forward, which is why I'm hoping after the midterms here in, in a few months that we'll see some Republican candidates for 2024 who will emerge, who will, who will advance all those traditional Republican policies, and they'll do so with, with integrity and courage and principle. And they'll also uh, distance themselves from Trump. And I think we just got to take that fight on and win or lose, we got to have we have to hash it out internally within the party, and, and and get it done. You faced some intense criticism from Trump supporters. I mentioned Steve Bannon earlier. I'm not sure if you saw this, but he said that you were guilty of treason on his show. What do you make of criticism from Trump boosters like that? Do you ignore Look, it? I would say I, I I've been serving my country since 18. I spent 21 years in the service, war and peace, served on Capitol Hill. Uh, I know who my oath is to, and it's to the Constitution and not to the president. And uh, and uh, fortunately, Trump never gave orders or rarely gave orders. So I never had was put in a position of having to disobey the president. So uh, I, I think uh, th those folks need to look in the mirror about who their loyalties are, are, are for. It seems that they're more loyal to Trump than they are to the country. Yeah, you, you do write about in the, that in the book that despite Trump's reputation for being a ruthless and decisive executive who you know never hesitates to fire people, he actually sort of rarely worked that way. It, how, right. how did he operate in that sense? You know, again, he, he, he rarely gave orders. He would tend to kind of suggest or throw it out in the air or, you, you know, t talk 
openly or muse about these things and hoping somebody would grasp onto it. And, and fortunately, in these critical moments, it would be myself and Millie or, you know, Barr would join in or Pompeo. We were able to push back on, again, some of the more outlandish ideas by folks around him and others and, and never got that direct order, which, again, gave us room to, to, to kind of push a, a better better options, better alternatives. And I describe one in the book about, you know, uh, coming up with a way to to uh, stop narcotics from traveling north from Latin America into the United States. And Bill Barr puts forward this clever idea that increased our interdiction, but avoided the proposal put forward by the NSC to uh, consider military action against Venezuela. So it was stuff like that where we were able to push back on bad ideas and propose better ones. And we would do it you know, as teammates, if you will. He did eventually dismiss you, as you as you noted, via tweet. What was that like? Were you expecting that to come when it did finally happen? You know, I was surprised it took them a week. I thought that I would be fired the day after the election because at that point, at least insiders thought that I had no utility to, utility to him that the election was over. So I was surprised that we actually lasted that long, but I was not surprised that, that uh, he, was, he wouldn't do it himself. He had Mark Meadows call me up and Mark Meadows, as I recount in the book, says, uh, look, uh, the president's firing you. He doesn't feel you're sufficiently loyal. Uh, and my response to him is that's his prerogative, but my oath is to the Constitution, not to him. And we both hang up. And, and that's it. That ends my tenure. Wow. Now, you've been asked ad nauseum over the, the last two weeks why you didn't speak out on some of the more alarming aspects of Trump's behavior sooner instead of waiting to include them in your book. Looking back at the last year or two, with the benefit of hindsight, would you have spoken out about anything sooner uh, or perhaps even during the administration? Or did you feel that that really wouldn't have made a difference? Well, it would have made a difference if I spoke out while I was in office because I would have been immediately fired. And, and I wouldn't have been in position then to block these really bad ideas, attacking Venezuela, you know, quarter million troops. I just wouldn't have been in, pay, in place. And again, I'm not just some standard staffer out there. I'm, I'm the secretary of defense. So I'm completely confident that that was the right decision. And then people will say, the kind of the critics pivot and say, well, you should have told us on November 10th. And my response is the election was over. The election was over. It had no impact whatsoever at that point in time. And the second thing I'd say is much of what I recount in the book, I had to get cleared from DOD. So I'm under a lifelong uh, uh, contract, whatever you want to call it, through the Pentagon with regard to uh, speeches I give or things I write, I have to get cleared by DOD. And as I said earlier in the conversation, it took me 10 months and it took suing DOD to get these stories told to include ideas to attack Iran or right. the, the shooting missiles into Mexico. So it's not like I, even if I wanted to, even if the election was the next day, November 11th, I couldn't have come out and just said these things because I would have been violating that piece of it. And I think the third argument is this. Look, I, I know that when I write something or I speak up as Secretary of Defense, a cabinet member, I'm speaking for history and I want to get it right. It's important to get that first draft of history right. And so, you know, as I wrote this book, I farmed it out to over two dozen four star officers and senior civilians and even cabinet members because I wanted to be as fair, as objective and accurate as possible, because I think the American people and history deserve that. Uh, I don't want to go out the day after I'm fired with bumper stickers and things like that, uh, I think you need people need to know the full context of what happened, the events leading up to it, et cetera, et cetera, because it all paints a more a more complete picture of what it was like serving in the administration. What was that process like trying to get the the book approved by the DOD? Because they were trying to redact large portions of it, right? 
Yeah, I submitted the book in May of 20, uh, 2021. I was trying to get it out that summer. Yeah. So I'm a summer behind. I'm a year behind. <laughs> I was trying to get out that summer, and it was supposed to take 30 days or so they advertised. And it wasn't until October that I heard back from DOD, and they, they informed me that they had redacted words, sentences, and paragraphs from over 60 pages. And of course, <laughs> they were the most, you know, some of the more startling stories that I recount. And I tried to work with them, and I got some of it cleared, but then it ultimately took me filing a lawsuit. And that didn't end until February. Actually, the lawsuit didn't end. I got them retract re re up to 90%. There were still a few other things hanging out there. I've actually left them redacted in the book to make the point. But I knew if I was going to get the book out in time, at least prior to the midterms, right. I just had to end my lawsuit, take my wins and get the book going because of you know how long it takes to get things cleared and edited and published and stuff like that. Because when you're in a DOD review process, you can't share this stuff with your editor, with anybody. What was the reason that they were trying to redact all of this? Was it classified information? Was it political? Well, the, the ostensible reason was that it was classified. But when they came back once, they finally came back and, and unclassified, I cleared it all. It made my point that it wasn't classified. Right. Mostly it was politically embarrassing. Like the, the shooting of missiles into Mexico, there was no way that was classified because the conversation was between me and the president. I didn't go back and classify it. I doubt he went back and classified it. No. They were concerned that it would embarrass the Mexicans or embarrass. And look, my view was, and I told them this, I don't care. Uh, it's the American people's history. It's our history. Mm. They should know if it's classified. I'm never going to leak. I'll, I'll obey the rules. If you tell me it's classified, you just got to prove it. Right. But too many instances, they were concerned about embarrassing folks. Right. And that's what it came down to. Congressman Ro Khanna of uh, California, Democrat, he's a member of the House Armed Services Committee, and he suggested that they would be interested in holding hearings or perhaps an investigation into whether Trump indeed called for, for protesters to be shot. Is that something that you would be interested in participating in? And, and do you think an investigation like that would serve a, a useful purpose? As horrendous as the idea would be of shooting protesters and things like that, I don't see what the purpose serves at this point. Uh, if you're going to investigate anything, I think January 6th is what needs to be investigated. Uh, the fact is the shooting of protesters never happened because uh, Barr and Millie and, and, and I pushed back. So it's you, you can't investigate, I guess, in some ways a non-event. I think the focus should be on on January 6th, that is really what threatened our, our democracy, threatened our republic and the, the peaceful transfer of power. And again, not that I'm saying it's, you know, the a proposal to shoot, it wasn't even a proposal, the, the question right. was not horrendous, and, and, but I just don't think it gets us anywhere. Do you think that there should be accountability for members of the administration that were involved in January 6th, whether or not they it gets proved to the extent to which they were involved in that? Look, I think we need to get to the bottom of the truth. We need to find out everything that happened and we need to hold folks accountable, whether you're a foot soldier who was somehow mistakenly inspired to come to D.C. or you're all the way to the top or somewhere in the administration. We need to get to the bottom of it. There needs to be accountability and we need to figure out lessons learned and then remedy remedy it so it doesn't happen again. My final question, I did want to ask you about the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Where do you think the war stands right now? And is there any chance at this point that Ukraine wins and that Russia retreats? First of all, complete strategic failure by Putin on multiple levels. I've been saying it since day one. And, you know, another nail in that coffin was put in today when or yesterday when the Finns and, and, and Sweden uh, applied for NATO membership. So we'll grow the alliance by two more members. And then tactically on the ground, clearly they failed to, to, to seize the country. They failed to capture Kiev. And then we thought, well, with phase two, they'll consolidate their gains in, in the Donbass and expand. And yet they haven't done that either. 
Uh, they're getting beat back, in fact. I think the only place that they really secured a victory, if you will, would be in the south in Mariupol. But time will tell. I think the Ukrainians are winning. And I think uh, I think fortune is on their side. They've shown bravery and courage and, and leadership. And the more that we pump uh, training and material and weapons and resources to them, while Russia continues to be drained, I think I think the momentum clearly shifts and expands in the Ukrainians' favor. And we'll just have to see where this goes. Uh, Secretary Mark Esper, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Aiden. I appreciate it too. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Secretary Mark Esper on Mediate.com. Mm-hmm.